When we talk about faith, we talk about that we live by faith. As, as a Christian and as a, uh, someone who is involved in, in the things of God, one of the greatest uh, ways in which we live is it's often said we live by faith. And what is faith? Well, the book of Hebrews defines faith as the uh, substance of things not seen and the evidence of things uh, unseen. So the idea of faith is, is with all of your heart and all of your mind to believe and to trust without what? Without actually physically seeing it with your eyes. Now, in today's society, that's not something that goes very well. In fact, we live in a society that is, I'll believe it or I'll understand it and I'll love when I see. And we are very foreign to the concept of faith, really. But Scripture very much teaches us that we must live by faith. And so in this passage here, we're talking about Uh, There is one disclaimer we must look at before we dive into verse 8. In verse 8 it says, whom? And to understand this, we must go back to the last two words of verse 7. So I call your attention simply to the very last two words found in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. What are those two words? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the subject of this morning's message. In fact, he's the subject of every message we preach. And if you are not attending a church or you don't go to a church where Jesus Christ is not the subject of the entire service, I would encourage you to find a different assembly. He is the main subject of the scriptures. He is the main subject of all the Bible. And folks, he is the main subject of our service, including this message this morning. So it is Jesus whom we are talking about. And in verse 8 it says, Jesus, whom having not seen, you love. And whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So the subject is Jesus Christ, but the recipients of this message, and those who need to hear it, including myself, are you and I. And we are told that there are three actions that we need to participate in. Three actions. And what are they? Love, belief, and rejoicing. Now we are called to love Christ. We are called to believe upon Christ. And we are called to rejoice in Christ Jesus. And the miraculous miraculous reason we're able to do these things, or the miraculous thing about this is, We are called to do these things without what? Without seeing Him. And so this morning, that is our message. Love, belief, and rejoice. We first see in verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Why would a person love Jesus Christ? The historical figure we know of, of Jesus, who claimed to be Christ, that's his title, he claimed to be Messiah. The historical figure of Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Yet even today I am calling, I am imploring you to love him. And why is it that I would suggest that you love someone that was 
alive on this earth 2,000 years ago. Why would I call your attention to do that? Well, we could spend this message, including this evening's message, and many other messages talking about why we should love Christ. But I'm going to give you four reasons this morning why you are to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we love him, even though we haven't seen him? But we love him because of his sinlessness. Can you imagine being in a relationship? Now, this might drive you a little bit crazy. Because we often, the way our relationships are built nowadays, we like to be able to hold something against someone else when they do something wrong. We almost use it as a bargaining chip. Ah, you messed up, so I'm going to remember that. And then the next time I mess up or the next time I want something, I'm going to bring that up to you so that I'll get my way. Or that our fight will be over. Remember when you did this? <laughs> and so a lot of times we like to use things that people have done wrong against them. But could you imagine being in a relationship where someone has never wronged you? Being in a relationship where someone had never said a word evil about you, never spoke badly about you, never had done anything to harm or to hurt you, but everything they had done was to edify you, lift you up, love you, uh, and fellowship with you. Could you imagine that type of a relationship? That's what we all would love to have. Well, I want you to understand that relationship is found in Jesus Christ. He is sinless. And a lot of the things that we have, a lot of the issues that we have in our relationships and, and the, the examples that I had brought up, folks, they're just a result of what sin is. Sin is seeking our own pleasure. Sin is striving to get what we want. Sin is to wanting to win that argument or that battle. And folks, I want you to understand, Jesus was and is sinless. And so it makes him very easy to love. Because he would never, he would never do anything to harm you. He would never do anything to put you in an uncomfortable situation or danger. Our Lord loves his people. And we love him because of his sinlessness. We also love him because of his selflessness. When you read in the scriptures of Jesus, it is amazing how he is always thinking of others and never thinking of himself. You think about the week that he was, or the day that he was arrested, that week before and the time before that. You know, you read the Gospel of John, and I think it's the first 12 chapters are over his three-and-a-half-year ministry. But you know, from chapter 13 on to chapter 20, almost half of the book, it all happens in just a short two-day period of time. And you know that during that time, is the time where he stresses in John 13, 14, and 15. He's teaching his disciples and he's preparing his disciples for the fact that he's leaving them. Now you have to understand, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. You can read in the scripture and he tells them, I must go because I must be arrested, crucified, 
and rise again the third day. He knew exactly what was going to take place. And so on the eve of his arrest, what did the Lord do? Was he concerned with himself? He was concerned with his people. And in chapter 13, he teaches them and he tells them about he's going to he's going to leave. But he tells them all the things that they need to be doing in chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you. In chapter 15, he tells them about that he's the true vine. And if they stay in contact and fellowship with him, they will have joy. And he was concerned, folks. He was concerned about their happiness the eve before he was arrested and crucified. John chapter 16, he says, Hey, I'm not going to leave you empty-handed. When I go, I'm sending a comforter. I want you to be, what? Comforted. And so, he's talking about how they should love one another. How he's preparing a place for them. How, how he's propelling fellowship and, and joy for them and comfort for them. And all of those things, he's telling them the day before. Or the, the day of the evening he's arrested. And then in John chapter 17, you have him stop and pray. And he prays for who? For his disciples. And even in that prayer, I want you to remember, folks, he says, I not only pray for these, but also for all of those which shall believe on me. That means he was praying for us, too. Then you say the Garden of Gethsemane, because right after that, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays. And you say, well, see, right there is where he's thinking of himself. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Lord, if this cup will pass from me, let it pass. I want you to understand something, folks. I believe that night was full of agony. I believe that night was sincere. And and I believe that those prayers he uttered were genuine. But I also want you to understand this. The reason those prayers were uttered was for your sake and for my sake also. You see, he already knew he had to die on the cross. He already knew the purpose of him coming into this world was to die on the cross. So why would he say, I'll let this cup pass if it can pass from me? The reason he did that, folks, is because when God, when the, the heavens were silent with that prayer, if this cup can pass, let it pass, that was a clear message to you and to me that the only way that salvation is possible for a sinner such as ourselves, the only way is for the Lord Jesus Christ to drink of that cup and to die on the cross for our sins. If there, I promise you this, folks, if there had been another way that you could go to heaven, salvation would have been that way. But the only way was through the death of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And so, he thought of his disciples before his arrest. He thought of his disciples even when he was praying in the garden. What about when he was on the cross? Surely there was some selfishness that came out when he was on the cross, right? You know, the Lord said seven things on the cross. And they're all pretty much geared to others. 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now here's a man that's being crucified that has had nails driven in his hands, that has nails driven in his feet, that has been whipped and beaten profusely. Blood is pouring down his back on that rugged cross that's that's obviously full of thorns and splinters. He has a crown of thorns on his head with blood pouring down upon his face. He is in complete agony and unbelievable torture of a human being. And his first thought is, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And then his next thing, he says, Verily today you shall be with me in paradise. His next statement is he's, he's telling another person that is sitting right beside him facing the same cruel judgment that he's facing, only he is doing it deservedly in Christ innocently. And he says, today you'll be with me in heaven. He looks out for his mother on the cross. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He says, John, take care of my mom. She needs it right now. Folks, the sayings on the cross, they were geared toward others as well. Jesus was selfless. And the relationship that we have with him, I want you to understand, he is still always thinking of us always thinking of his people. After the resurrection, he was selfless too. Instead of going around saying, see, I told you so, do you know what he did when he rose again? He called for Peter by name, first of all, because Peter had just failed him. He restored Peter. He gave the the, the disciples confidence to go out and proclaim his name. He encouraged them. He was still thinking of his people even after his resurrection. Even during his ascension, when he goes to be with them, you know one of the messages that is left with the people? Even as he's going up into heaven, the message he leaves them is this, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. He is selfless. We love him because of his sinlessness. We love him because of his selflessness. We also love him because of his service. Not only was he selfless in thoughts toward other people, but folks, he also served other people as well. He served others. He healed other people of their infirmities. We read of his first miracle in John where he turns water to wine. Now what kind of benefit would he get out of that? He did that for the enjoyment and the pleasure of other people. He fed multitudes of people. Different times it's recorded that he fed a multitude of people. He served them. He even bowed his knee down and he washed the feet of the disciples in an in a, um, in a act of service unlike any other. The God of the universe, the one who spoke into this world existence and said, let there be light. He humbled himself and bowed his knee and washed the feet of his disciples. He ministered and watched over them. He was obedient even unto death. And he served even in his death. 
And even today, folks, I want you to understand, in heaven, right now today, he is our advocate. And he continually and always will represent us. He serves. Why do we love Jesus? Folks, imagine if, a, if you knew a person that was like this. That never did you any harm. That was completely sinless in the way they acted toward you. That was completely selfless. That always put your needs above their own. That served you and did all that you needed done. Always looking out for you and watching out for your benefit. And then the fourth reason I want to say that we love him is this. Not only is he sinless, not only is he selfless, not only does he serve us, but we love him because of the sacrifice he made for us. The Bible talks about a very scarcely would someone lay down their life for a righteous man. And the idea of that is if you were a good person and we had a, a relationship one with another and we were very good friends, there might be instances where that person would be willing to lay down their life for the better benefit of that other person. Has that ever happened? Would that ever happen? Yeah, that happens. But would you lay down your life for that person whom you disagree with all of their positions, who what you stand for, they stand against? Would you lay down your life for the person that is completely and utterly in a contrast of your beliefs and moral values? Would you lay down your life for that person? A person that is not a part of your family, would you lay down your life for that person? No. You can't find one person that would do that. I am mistaken. You can find one person that would do that. The Lord Jesus Christ did do that. You see, when we talk about strike, drastic contrast, we are the furthest thing from who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is God. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is holy. And folks, to say that we are not is an understatement. We are sinners. We are rebellious. We are those whom in our own nature can do nothing to please a holy and just God and really don't care whether we do or not either. And yet, it is for those people, those people that are diseased and sick with sin, those people that, that in their minds and in their hearts they rebel against a holy and just God, it is for those people that Jesus sacrificed and laid down his life for. He took our sins on the cross. He bore our sorrows and our transgressions. And he gave us his righteousness. It is for us undeserving people that he laid down his life for. And if that doesn't cause a response of love on your behalf, what will and what can? We love him. We love him because of his sinlessness, his selflessness, his service, and his sacrifice. And we love him even though what? We've never seen him. We've never seen him. Now, that's not the end of that passage. That passage says, uh, Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet 
believing. Believing. You ever heard the, the phrase, seeing is believing? We use that all the time. In fact, most people say, I won't believe it until I see it. We want evidence of things. And the fact is, we don't have, we don't have the ability to go look ourselves right now at the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ in a resurrected state. He is in heaven. He is ruling and reigning in heaven. And we don't see him with our own eyes. But yet, we believe. Now, the question I have is not why we believe tonight or this morning. It's what do we believe? And the reason why is because I say, why do you love Jesus? Well, because of all those reasons I mentioned, it's easy to understand why we love him. But, but when I say, why do we believe upon Jesus? I want to tell you the answer is because of the Spirit of God. Now, you may be sitting here and you may not be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand the thing that separates you from me and the thing that separates you from the others here that do believe is simply this. The Spirit of God has opened my eyes to see a resurrected Savior. It's not that I I have studied more and am am smarter or more intelligent or I have factual uh, data here. It's not that. It's because the Spirit of God worked in me and showed me that He is risen. And I believe it, folks. Now, it's easy to have the attitude of, I'll believe it when I see it. In fact, one of the disciples had that attitude. I'm going to read this account very quickly. I know that most of you know it. But in John chapter 20, they had told the disciples that Jesus rose again. And in John chapter 20, they told Thomas, Hey, Jesus has risen again. He is alive. And this is what Thomas says. Verse 25, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, And put my finger into the prints of the nails. And thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. Shame on him, right? How dare him? You need to understand, Thomas is doing exactly what you and I would do. He's saying, hey, you're telling me Jesus is alive? Unless I see him and put my hand in his side and my finger in the nail print hands. Unless I do that, I'm not going to believe. Well, verse 27, verse 26, sorry. After eight days, again, the disciples were within and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the door being shut, and stood in the midst of him, saying, Peace be unto you. Jesus appears. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger and behold my hands. Reach your hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. What's Jesus say? Hey, this is what Jesus basically does. He says, hey, do what you need to do. Touch my hand. Touch my side. Do what you need to do. And now don't be faithless, but believe because it's real. And Thomas does this. 
And in verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, now listen to this, folks, because this applies to us. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus says, blessed are those that don't see but yet do believe. And 1 Peter 1.8 says, though now we see him not, yet believing. Now the only reason we believe is through the Spirit's work. No one believes otherwise. But there are historical evidences. There are historical and earthly evidences for the existence of Jesus Christ and the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now has anybody ever heard of a man by the name of Lee Strobel? He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Has anybody ever heard of that? I would encourage you, if you haven't, uh, to either read the book or at least watch the movie. It's pretty good. Uh, There was an incident, and I might be messing all of this up. I'm doing this based on the best of my recollection I can. There was an incident where he and his wife, and uh, he and his wife were at a restaurant, I believe, and his daughter or his child began to choke. And she was very, very close to passing away. And I don't know if someone prayed there or what the case was, but eventually uh, their child was saved. And so the wife begins going to church there right after that and to, I guess, try to seek some answers. And as a result, she came to believe without seeing, she came to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting part of this whole story is that She initially and at first was an atheist. And in fact, her husband, Lee Strobel, was a very devout, you could say, atheist. He didn't believe in the existence of God. He didn't believe, especially didn't believe in this Jesus Christ. And so, when she believed, it caused a tremendous, it caused a tremendous divide in their marriage. And so he decided he was going to, with all of his research that he did and the work that he did, he was going to, without a doubt, prove that this was all a hoax. To prove that this was nothing to believe on. And so what he did is he began to compile evidence in a case to debunk Jesus Christ and the gospel. Well, he began interviewing people, and then it came down to this one point. He found out what the smoking gun would be, and that if he could debunk the smoking gun, he could debunk everything. And the smoking gun was this. He talked to many people, and the idea was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can prove wrong and and disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you've eliminated all of your wife's belief and hope in all of Christianity's belief and hope. And so this man was bound and determined to debunk the resurrection. But you know what happened? 
the more he studied and the more he tried to debunk it, the more he found evidence in the favor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's an interesting read, but he talks about certain things that no person would do. Like, for instance, the testimony that when Jesus appeared, he appeared to women, to women. And he says, uh, his argument is, why would he appear to these women? They were unreliable testimony. Now, women, I want to tell you, this is just the way things were, and I apologize, this isn't me being chauvinist, but you have to understand, back in the day of Palestine back then, back in the days of Jesus in Jerusalem, a woman would not be a credible witness to your story because no one would listen to her or believe her. Sorry, that's just the way it was in history back then. And so... Lee Strobel says, well, why would he appear to women first? And why would that? If that's such an unreliable, uh, unreliable witness from back in those days. But then you have to think of it on this perspective. If anyone, now listen to me, folks. If anyone back in that time was fabricating this story, they would not have written it that way. If anybody was making this story up, they would not have written it, that Jesus would have appeared to the women first. In fact, the fact that the testimony is that he appeared to the women first is more of an evidence on the fact that it is true than that it is false. Secondly, I'm going through so much of these things, I need to hurry up, but I'll just give you one more. And the, the fact that one more is the disciples themselves. They are all told to have stolen the body of Christ. It is all told that it was all a a big hoax and that the, the, the disciples made this up or stole the body and made up the resurrection. That's still, folks, I want you to understand, that's still being used today to try to debunk the resurrection. But you want to know one of the greatest evidences that that's not the case? You could get 11 people to come up with an elaborate lie. You absolutely could. You could get 11 people together, and I could get 11 people in this room, and I could tell you, all we're going to lie about this, and, and we're going to stick to it till the end, and we're going to hold fast to this lie. And we could get everyone to agree with that. You know what you couldn't do? You would not get 11 people that would be willing to die for that lie. These men that testified to the fact that they saw Jesus Christ in a resurrected state, I want you to understand, they were willing and did, most of them, die for that belief and that truth. And if it was a lie and if it was a hoax, I promise you, one of them, if not all of them, would have come clean. But they all were willing to die for the truth. Of the resurrection. So very quickly, what is it that we do believe? Without seeing, what do we believe? Number first, I believe we, we must believe in his birth. We must believe in the virgin birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to tell me, does that mean a person can't go to heaven if they don't believe in the virgin birth? I will say this. 
When a person is saved, a lot of times when a person is first saved, they understand that they are a sinner, and they understand that Jesus has died for their sins, and they believe upon him, and that's it. Okay? So, that's like when people say, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't be saved. Here's what I'll say. A person may not even know of those things and be saved initially. But I do also want to say this. The virgin birth is crucial to the fact that we believe. Why is it? Because one of the things that we love about him, remember, was what? He is sinless. Well, folks, if you don't have the virgin birth, you lose his sinlessness as well. He must be been born of a virgin to be sinless. We believe in his birth. We also believe in his claim. What is his claim? You read the scripture, and Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God, but also claims to be God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God. Now, the reason I want to very importantly stress this, and we're closing down, we're almost done. The reason I want to stress this is because there's a lot of people going around today saying this. I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I do believe that He's a good teacher or a good man and a good role model. You ever hear anybody say that? Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a good teacher. But the Son of God? No. Muslims will say, that Jesus is a good teacher or a good man or even a prophet, but not the Son of God. Other religions today will acknowledge, yeah, you should follow the teachings of Jesus, but he wasn't the Son of God. Here's what I want to tell you. If you don't believe his claim that he is the Son of God, you cannot believe that he's a good teacher or a good man. Okay. If he is not the son of God and his whole testimony and ministry is based that he is, then he is a liar, a deceiver, a con artist, and a scammer. And you say he's a good man? You say he's a good teacher? His teaching is based on the fact that he is the Son of God. So if he's not the Son of God, his teaching is useless. You see, you either take Jesus for who he says he is, or you don't take him at all. There is no middle ground. And this whole concept of, oh, he's a good man, he's a good teacher, it's baloney. He's either God, who he claims to be, or he is a deceiver, a liar, a false teacher, and not a good man. You can't have it both ways. But the Bible very clearly shows us He is God. And we believe that claim. We believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's just a fancy word for saying we believe that Jesus took our place on the cross and paid for our sins. And if you don't believe that, folks, what is there to believe? And then we believe in His resurrection. We believe that on the third day he rose again. 
We believe that he is alive today and is well. These are the things we must believe, folks. We must believe his virgin birth. We must believe his claim that he is God. We must believe the substitutionary atoning work on the cross. And we must believe that he rose again the third day. Without these things, we have no salvation. Without these things, we have no hope. Do you believe these things, even though you haven't seen them? Do you ever struggle with your belief? We all do, don't we? There are times when we all struggle. In fact, I often think of the passage in Mark uh, chapter 9 and verse 24 where it says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And I believe these things that I've said. But folks, sometimes you get bogged down with the world. Sometimes all the negativity. Sometimes all the people trying to disprove these things. Sometimes it shakes our belief a little bit. And we doubt a little bit. But folks, ultimately, we must hold fast to who Jesus is, who he claims to be, and what he has accomplished. Whom having not seen, ye love. Whom having, whom having now, ye see him not, yet believing. And then lastly, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Now the question is this. Why do we rejoice? Why do we rejoice? After what we talked about this morning, why would you not rejoice? Why would you not rejoice? Now, I just shut my Bible, but I forgot I needed to look at, at something here. Um, I believe we rejoice in three different ways. We rejoice for the past. All the things we talked about, what Jesus said, who he said he was, what he had accomplished, his death on the cross, he took our sins upon our cross, all those transgressions that we would be judged for, he paid for on the cross. We rejoice in that. We rejoice in his resurrection, that he defeated death and the grave. We rejoice in that. We're also able to rejoice in the present time. In fact, in our text, right before uh, that, our verse, in, in the verse 7, right before it, it says, The trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth. The, you see, we're going to face trials, but yet we're able to rejoice. Why? Because he's always in control. He's always there. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And then why else do we rejoice? Well, the next part of verse 7. It says that we might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. See, one day he's coming again. And when he comes again, folks, he brings with him something. He brings with him all of those that have died believing upon him in the past. They will come and re receive a new body. And those that are here and remain will be changed in a twinkling, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And forever we will be with the Lord. Why wouldn't we rejoice with that ending? Why wouldn't we rejoice with that hope? So I call you today for this as we close. Children of God, and maybe those that aren't children of God, I urge you to do this. 
even though you haven't seen him with your eyes. Love him because he deserves to be loved. Even though you still have not seen him, believe upon him. Believe the things that he says. And you know, if you're here this morning and you haven't believed, just simply trust in Jesus Christ. Believe upon him. Believe the things I talked about, that he died on the cross for your sins. If you simply believe upon him, and that he died for your sins and rose again the third day, folks, you can then do this next step that I'm going to tell you. Rejoice. Rejoice in what he has done, rejoice in what he's doing, and rejoice in what your future holds, child of God. Faith is a wonderful thing. And though we haven't seen him with our own eyes, he has changed every one of our lives.